Hello, I'm Michael Bott. And I'm Rupert Soskin. Welcome to another Prehistory Guys interview, talking with people making a difference in the world of archaeology and prehistory. And today we're really delighted to be talking with Amanda Hart, director of the Corinium Museum in Sirencester. Now, despite any number of challenges over the past six years, including more recently the COVID lockdowns, of course, Amanda has kept driving the project of giving the museum a complete overhaul and redesign and with her team has created a breathtaking set of galleries that cover the full span of human history in the Cotswolds. One thing that makes Amanda so rare is that she's a museum director with archaeology in her veins. She studied archaeology at university and has been involved on excavations of the Bronze Age sites in the Moroni Valley on Cyprus, and ultimately she turned this back to her love of museums, bringing a unique slant on how archaeology could be presented to the public. We think that what Amanda has achieved at Corinium is nothing short of extraordinary, and this interview is our way of helping celebrate her dedication and devotion in bringing prehistory to a wider audience. We hope you enjoy our conversation as much as we do. Amanda Hart, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the show. And how the devil are you? Apart from all the nonsenses, you've actually moved house while all this has been going on as well, haven't you? Oh, I, I did. It's been just a, a whirlwind few years for me, um, particularly the last two to three years when I've been working on the Stone Age to Corinium project, the, the build side of the project and developing the new galleries. Um, and last year, in the middle of all of that, I decided to move house. <laughs> so I moved to um, a lovely little place um, in the Cotswolds called Nailsworth. And um, Nailsworth is quite, it, it's, a, it's a quirky place is the, the best way I can describe it. Um, but my, my journey to work now involves going up over Minchin Hampton Common and I frequently get stopped by the cows that are on the common land, so they just wander across the road. Um, yeah, but fresh I air do, in the Cotswolds. Yeah, in the Cotswolds. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I do love wildlife, and Nailsworth is um, in a valley, and our hill sits at the top of the valley, so we, we overlook um, the, the valley from the back of our house, and, you know, it's, oh, it's just delightful. I just switch off Fantastic. when I see that. Well, an extraordinary Fantastic. achievement, uh, moving house while this is all still uh, going on, but an extraordinary achievement over the past six years. I just thought you might like an opportunity, mm. uh, Amanda. I mean, it's not just you, although I do get the whiff of extraordinary le leadership going on here as far as getting this complete is concerned. But you might like an mm. opportunity to acknowledge, uh, you know, the people that have worked with you. Uh, on on this and uh, and creating um, this extraordinary new, well, it's almost virtually a new museum, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It really is. Um, oh my goodness! I mean, there's such a long list of of people involved in this project. Um, I mean, I would have to start with the the immediate museum team um, because you know none of this would have happened without the strong team that that. Um, we have here at Crinium Museum um, for their expertise and, and their professionalism. Um, but in particular, I would say um, Dr. Alison Brooks, who heads up the collections team. Um, she's been invaluable in terms of um, the interpretation scheme and looking at, at the objects and choosing those um, with me. Um, so we very much worked on that together. Um, and all of her staff beneath her have been involved in in selecting objects from the archive, doing a lot of the research, all of that kind of thing. I and mean, we we did our own interpretation for this, so we've written all the information that you read in the galleries itself. So, I mean, it has been an immense piece of work putting those together. Um, also, I give special mention to uh, Emma Stewart, who um, has headed up the activity plan. Um, so because this project is National Lottery Heritage funded, um, there are two aspects to it. It's not just about um, the build itself and, and the new galleries. Um, that's the, the, the heritage element, if you like. Um, 
but it's also about people and communities and how we are going to benefit people and communities through this project. So we have to be able to demonstrate that. Um, so the way that we've done that is look at um, how we're going to engage our audiences. And Emma um, wrote all of that plan and, and has been instrumental in, in delivering a lot of that work. So her and, and her team um, in the education side, exhibition side, um, you name it, they've all contributed to that. So um, I would say that's the sort of the, the key museum team involved in, in the project. But on top of that, um, you know, we're very fortunate here in the Cotswolds. We have uh, a number of um, high profile academics that have been excavating in the area as well. Um, so to name a few, Dr. Tom Moore, Tim Darville, um, and just down the road from us is Cotswold Archaeology. Um, we have a really strong partnership mm -hmm. with them. So um, I'd say Neil Holbrook, Martin Watts, who heads up Cotswold Archaeology at Kemble. Um, mm -hmm. It's been great talking to all of these people as well in, in putting um, the, the galleries together, talking to them about how they might look as well. Um, also, the whole project team in terms of exhibition design, um, the, the build works, you know, building, and that's the engineering side, mechanical engineering, the, the lighting, um, you know, you, you name it in, in that sense as well. And the architects have done a fantastic job. So, yes, there's lots of people. I could go on and on. Uh, but just before we <laughs> come on to asking you about yourself and your own involvement you know, and what, what's been going, are there any particular sort of highs and lows, pushbacks, you, you know, that have occurred for you? I know not least of which, of course, is the pandemic. Oh, kind of yeah. got in the way a bit, but also provided an opportunity yes. to get things complete. I don't know. Yeah. It's really difficult, um, I think, because it's again, because it's her heritage funded, you go through this process where it's two phases. The first phase, which took three years in itself, was what's called mm. the development phase. And you have to put forward your ideas, but in that you have to write a 10-year business plan, interpretation plan, the activity plan, and you have to go through all of that. They give you a, a small amount of money to invest at that point to work out your ideas with audiences, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but at the end of that three-year period, before you've even started building works or anything, at that point, they could say no. And that's been three years worth of, of work to yes. get to that oh, stage. My goodness. Oh, and lots of projects fall down at that point. Yeah. And it's yeah. devastating right. for people that have invested in that time. Um, yeah. So... That was an anxious moment. Thankfully, we, we did get through to the, the next phase, and that's when they give you then all the funding to actually go ahead and, and yeah. do the project. Yeah. Yeah. I think the next biggest hurdle for me was when building work started. Um, because of the nature of the building, it's a grade two um, listed building. Um, you know, there's uh, four buildings yeah. that join together to make up Carinian Museum, and... In the architectural plans, I wanted to remove a corner of one of those buildings. So um, the corner is actually was in our main reception. In order for that to, to come out, we were quite limited in what investigation work we could do because it would have meant digging up in the middle of our reception area. So we could only do a small amount of investigative work. When we did that amount of work, um, we, we knew that the ground wasn't great, but we came up with two schemes, structural schemes, so that, um, you know, if there were two different eventualities, we could go with one of those schemes. In the end, when they started to excavate to actually take out the corner of that building, it was the worst case scenario. Um, they discovered that the building was almost sitting on a, on a river, <laughs> basically. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. And they were amazed at how the building was still standing still standing so, yeah they really they really were they were saying do you know what you you absolutely need to do this work now <laughs> whether you like it or not yeah. you need to do this. <laughs> but at that point of course 
they said, right, we can't because of the nature of this, we have to go three meters down. We have yeah. to pile, we have to do it by hand because it's the building above is three stories high with a strong room at yeah. the top of the museum. So extremely dangerous. And they said, this is gonna be an expensive job. They came back and it, it added something like 250 to 300,000 pounds more onto the project. And oh, you know, I've done a lot of the fundraising for the project myself. And at that point, having to go back, talk to key stakeholders and get their further investment was a really stressful time for me. That was particularly difficult. Mm, I'm sure. I'm um, so glad that we have an opportunity to, you know, for people to understand the size, you know, of the task that uh, you yeah. Uh, yeah. took on and the roller coaster yeah. experience yeah. that must have been. But now, Rupert, yes. you well, kick off. Uh, yeah, I to want the next... to know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing is, th th there is so much to talk about in in what you've actually achieved at the museum. But before we get into that, I want to ask you. We always yeah. ask everybody. Hmm. What on earth was it that got you involved in archaeology in the first place and ultimately brought you to be the director of a museum, for God's sake? Yeah. Um, right. Because you have, uh, you, you've excavated in, in Cyprus as well, haven't you? You know, archaeology was a thing uh, before you really got into the museum side. So, yeah, yeah. tell us about that. What got you where you oh, were? Right. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to deviate slightly uh, it might be a first for the prehistory guys, but because I think there's 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 mm -hmm. two strands to to my passion. One's archaeology, and the other is museums. And when I look okay. back on on my life and how I got into this, I think the two regularly cross over and and you know come up. So um, I think from a museum perspective, um, I think everybody remembers their first visit to a, a museum and mm. um, mine was when I was um, really little I was still in, in in primary school and I grew up in Australia so I was in Australia and I remember going to the Melbourne Museum and seeing Farlap the racehorse which was oh, famous cool. because this racehorse won um, the gold cup in Melbourne several times and it became this this big thing in, in Melbourne and it's, if you go to the Melbourne Museum and, and look at what's in there there's not a <laughs> there's not a great deal but I remember seeing this huge <laughs> racehorse and being absolutely <laughs> amazed you know the size of it and what 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 was this thing what was this object and why was it important and I think that was my first experience really of the ability of museums to really infuse and inspire and and you know uh, make you ask questions about objects so that was my first museum experience and because I grew up in Australia um I didn't I didn't really encounter much archaeology until um I moved to to Britain and um and then I remember in school learning about European prehistory. And it was when Stone Age was on the curriculum. And I remember, you know, learning about Stone Age people, hunter gatherers, and I was absolutely fascinated, really fascinated. Yeah. So um, that sort of got me on the archeology span trajectory, but I have to say, you know, my parents are, are both really into archeology. span um, my, my dad's an archdeacon, um, so I spent a lot of my childhood going to ecclesiastical um, buildings, abbeys, churches. And because my dad was was based at a lot of um, medieval churches, there were a lot of excavations, actually. <laughs> so he would take me along yes. um, and show me what was happening as well. Um, so right. that was... Um, you know, quite an important thing in my childhood. And because we moved from Australia, um, initially it was for a, a sabbatical for my father. Um, and initially it was for three years. So in that those three years, we traveled all over Europe and visited so many museums and sites. Um, 
and I just became more and more interested in in archaeology as a subject. How did you come to be where you are at, uh, at the Corinian Museum? Um, so after um, I studied ancient history, and then and then I I I went on to study archaeology at university at Reading. And at the time, um, I was interested in European prehistory. And I was fortunate enough, there were only six of us um, that were able to go on this excavation in, in Cyprus. Um, so mm-hmm. I went out in my first year. It was a Bronze Age site in the Moroni Valley. Um, and we were excavating a, a Bronze Age house, which was stunning. You think about Bronze Age buildings in in Britain and compare it to those in Cyprus. I mean, these had pebble mosaic floors. They were <laughs> something else. You know, I just remember just the feeling being on excavation and, and finding things. You know, I, I found um, a rubbish tip that was full of oil lamps, but the most exquisite oil lamps. Um, so I, that was it. I was, I, I, I got the bug, and but I became more interested in artifacts. I mean, I think I discovered when I was in Cyprus because I went back for another season, and um, I think I knew then I wasn't going to be a site archaeologist because it was <laughs> it was just grueling. Really, I mean, yes. long day. I mean, hats off to all archaeologists that work on on digs because yeah, it is absolutely. hard work. Hats off to all archaeologists. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Seems, seems, just, it, it's so true. So it's, it's something we, we've we've commented so many times about the amount of uh, after the event work, you know, with people wading through God knows how many thousand pieces of flint that all need to be catalogued and everything else. Yeah, yeah it's true. Field archaeologists are um, <laughs> yeah. we, field archaeologists. We salute you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we, we do because I just thought I just I I couldn't do it. I couldn't make a living out of this, but I. I became more interested in the objects themselves and what yeah. objects can tell us mm. um, about, well, so many things. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I decided yeah. that I was going to go down the route of um, working in a museum. And so I, um, I, I, I did a lot of voluntary work in museums and, and then I did my um, MA in museum studies at Leicester. Um, but I... I never strayed from archaeology, so I specialised in archaeological curatorship. But doing a museum studies mm. course, it's you know it's so practical that it taught me all the the different aspects of museology and working in museums because there's so many different facets to working in a museum, and I guess all of that yeah. is what makes a good exhibition because all of those elements go into a, a good exhibition. It's not just about the objects, it's about so many other things as well. Yeah. And why particularly yeah. Sirencester? What, what, how, how, uh, how did you come to be particularly at Sirencester? Um, well, I just finished my studies and I was still working at Reading University and um, I was really just looking for um, museum jobs, but I knew that I... I wanted to work in an archaeological museum. And it's not that many in the country. <laughs> Choices no. are limited. Oh, no. Yeah. So it was the first um, museum job that I applied for. And um, I, mm. I I got the job. And I, I actually Amazing. came yeah. to Corinium to to work um, as the, the head of education to, to run that department. Um, oh, okay. Oh, interesting. Yeah, which I did for ten years, and and then at that point, I mean, I was I was looking for other jobs, um, but I'd already decided then that I wanted to get back into collection side of things, and then the job came available here, and I went for it, and, and here I still am. <laughs> but I decided and, to and at that point that history, I want to do yeah. a project, so hence yeah. I started the the project. Well, that's a perfect segue into the next question because, you know, <laughs> clawing back a, a bit now, then, you know, the the thing 
the question comes up, why the last six years? You know, what were the particular problems that needed to be uh, addressed at the museum that kick-started mm -hmm. uh, this um, project into activity? Um, well, I think museums have gone through quite a, a, a difficult period, really, with, with lots of challenges. Um, we are a local authority museum, and, um, you know, all our funding initially came through the local authority. And, of course, at that point, government grants had been reducing. So a lot of what they call sort of discretionary services were being looked at. And um, certainly at that time, a number of museums were looking at alternatives. Um, sorry, a, lot, a number of councils were looking at alternative ways of delivering their museum services. Um, mm. So a number went out to um, trusts. They set up their own charitable trusts um, and others uh, like us, um, we were actually put out on a contract. So we're currently on a, mm. on a contract. Um, okay. So right. there were lots of different management models being, being looked at. Um, but with this sort of the, the decreasing um, investment, if you like, that came with reducing staff numbers, which then came with mm -hmm. reducing our resources. And, and museums really were being asked to look at um, their income streams. You know, you can't rely on yeah. government funding anymore. So how are you going to become viable um, and sustainable as, as a museum? So we needed to consider um, our assets, if you like, and look at... Um, you know, the building itself and what we could do with the building. And we also needed to mm -hmm. consider our programming. It just, it wasn't enough anymore for museums to just open their doors and expect people to come. You know, you just Understood. couldn't do yeah. that. So, so what were we going to do to um, get people into the museum? Mm. So that's really was the starting point for the project. And there are a number of things that I'd observed within the museum um, myself that I thought, oh, you know, one day if I get the opportunity, I would change this because it doesn't, it's not working. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, one of the things we, we have a, um, what we call our lifelong learning center, a catchy title, <laughs> but um, it's a, a space that can be used for all sorts of activity. So it can be a lecture theatre, um, but it has retractable seating, so then it can convert into a workspace area. Um, and some of the new income streams with our, um, our programming that we'd tested out were things like running a cinema here in the museum, which actually okay. really yep. took um, off. <laughs> goodness, and it was yeah, becoming yeah. Re oh, wow. yeah. It became a really good income stream, so we thought, okay, so c cinema works. Let's try live screenings of national theatre and opera. And oh, oh, anyway, cool, cool, cool. people couldn't get enough of these, so we were doing <laughs> more things like that in that space. Yeah. But also, um, corporate hire became a, a really important income stream for us. So we would have. Um, you know, companies, local companies use our space um, to do their events. And then we found ourselves in this impossible position where we had this amazing space and we were turning away corporate hires because schools okay. took priority in that space. You know, that's one of our uh -huh. sort of mm -hmm. targets that we have to meet. Um so it was really frustrating to think we could be getting all this income and yet we don't we don't have the space to accommodate all these different things happening in the right. museum. Right. Yeah. So certainly one of the central things in the project was to create a space um, that could be used for all sorts of other things, the school workshops, but demonstrations, work that volunteers do, all yeah. of that could happen in this this new space that would be at the heart of the museum. Yeah. And the other space would be freed up. So that's just one example. Yeah, was was there a kind of a, a tipping point that um, where 
there was no turning back, you know, a, a sort of a launching point, an event that happened or something that came off, you know, at what point was the decision made to, to go forth? <laughs> I think once I set my mind to something, <laughs> I'm a starter finisher <laughs> and I'm determined. Excellent. And once I'd set off on that journey, that yeah. was it, I was doing it. I was doing it, okay. but it's a really okay. right at that at the start. It's a really <laughs> difficult thing because, in order to get the investment you need from somebody like the the National Lottery Heritage Fund, yeah. you have to have already had significant investment from elsewhere. But a lot I of see, other funders yeah. wouldn't invest no. until they got the Heritage Fund money. So it was like a chicken that and egg one. scenario. Right. Yeah. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. So that that was quite difficult, that first stage. Hats off to you because, you know, the, it is quite extraordinary, you know, to jump through these hurdles, to get through these hurdles and have the strength and passion to uh, make sure these things happen. The Corinium Museum, the kind of the clues in, in the name a bit, and previously mm. uh, the, and, and it still is, uh, Sirencester is a Roman town, and uh, the museum uh, is very much focused on the Roman occupation and what they left behind. But what, yeah. of course, attracted, you know, uh, um, brought us to you was that we found out that you were shifting the focus just a little bit to include more about the prehistory of uh, of the Cotswolds. That wasn't to say that there wasn't a prehistory element before, but mm. you have determined to bring it far more uh, into into focus. So, um, what, from your point of view, was the, the the big thing? You know, it's just just your own personal passion about that, or was there something more that had you uh, bring the emphasis more around towards prehistory uh, and the development of the, the fantastic, uh, as far as I've seen from the film, the uh, exhibition itself, the interpretation itself. Yeah. Oh, it's just in you saying it there that I realised that actually. <laughs> There's definitely some of me in that, and that actually, yes, my passion about prehistory is probably why I chose those galleries. <laughs> However, it's not the only reason. <laughs> um, we've gone through various stages of development with this museum over the years, and the last major development was um, in 2002 to 2004. Um, and in that development, um, the whole Roman section... Um, was doubled in size, the mezzanine level was put on. We added in a Saxon gallery at that time, revamped medieval, um, and then uh, went through to the 19th century. So all of those sections were really looked at in that phase of development, which took two years, and that was a £7 million project. So, you know, that was extensive. Um, so I was really looking at areas that needed development at the time. And the prehistory galleries, um, oh, I don't want to say dire, that's a bit harsh, but they, <laughs> they were old and tired. <laughs> and they really, yeah. um, they, ne- they needed looking at. And they, the interpretation hadn't really been looked at for, well, at that point, 25 years. So, so now we're talking oh 30 goodness. years plus. Um, and of course, you know, as a, a museum, the thing that people have to realize is that we are constantly collecting. So over a period of 25 to 30 years, you can imagine, well, maybe you can't, but we have amassed a huge amount of, <laughs> of archaeology, um, you yeah. know, with boxes, yeah. boxes of archaeology. And certainly in the areas of prehistory, because they weren't done as part of the other galleries we we had a lot of material in storage that we we needed to review and we needed to get it out on display and it just seemed the obvious thing that the the prehistory galleries were looked at you you are the depository museum for the whole of the Cotswolds aren't you we are we are we are now we all we haven't always been um but since I think 1976 (laughs) we have 
collected for the entire Cotswold district. That's just huge. <laughs> yes. I think the Cotswolds is the largest rural district in England. I mean, it is, it is huge, but also it's archaeologically rich. It's a rich landscape. Yeah. You know, we have a lot of archaeology, but we have some really important archaeology as well and some important stories to tell from that. Which particular site, which uh, particular excavations have you focused on in the museum, in the prehistory part of the museum? Um, so in the, the older prehistory galleries that we had, um, some of that archaeology is obviously incorporated into the new galleries. Um, mm. So uh, I'm just trying to think. So Hazelton North is a, yep. um, a long... Mm. Barrow, um, yep. Neolithic, Cotswold 7 type cairn um, that was chosen for full excavation between 1979 and, and uh, 82. And the reason it was selected for excavation is because a committee had been formed sometime in the 70s looking at the risk of, of these Cotswold 7 barrows because they were being um, destroyed, if you like, by by ploughing, and um, it was becoming yeah. an increasing issue. So this of committee course, was yeah, formed yeah. to look at this, and they excavated um, Hazelton Longbarrow and um, all, all the, the the contents of it. So it's it's around forty one individuals from that barrow. Oh my goodness! Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And around... Oh, that that competes well with uh, yeah some more well known ones, doesn't it? Goodness. Yes. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's a really well-known, famous long barrow. It, it appears on Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> That's the one. Yeah. 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 So we Indiana Jones talks earlier, about we... it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, um, that's wonderful. Yeah, okay. Grief. So there, there were two chambers to this long barrow, uh, north and south. And um, mm -hmm. we have the complete south chamber reconstructed in the Carinia Museum. Oh, fantastic. So you can actually... Yeah, it is um, extraordinary, actually. It's extraordinary, but that was already in those galleries. It was put in there in, yeah. in um, the 80s. Um, yeah. But it was in the wrong place. So as part of the project, <laughs> okay. we had to move this south chamber into another location so we could put the cases in. Um, yeah. So we we had specialist conservators, Clevedon Conservation, who were brilliant, um, yeah. and they single-handedly had to remove, first of all, the smaller stones on the outside and then all the massive orthostats, um, and they had to be moved into the, the new location. Um, the, the base of this chamber um, was actually structurally engineered, and there was a joke on site okay. that you could launch a rocket off it because, <laughs> because it, had, it had to take the weight of this chamber, which is huge weight. So we have the, yeah. the Hazelton Arc. Oh, gosh, that's just Sorry, incredible. which is um, it's really important because in terms of scientific analysis, all of those individuals, um, because it, it sort of demonstrates a, a Neolithic community, they have um, mm. been analysed quite a lot <laughs> by researchers. So we have quite a lot of information um, about uh, the skeletal remains from this site. Yeah, yeah. You've also got a representation of a beaker burial. Is that right, Amanda? Yes. So, um, yes, two other important sites to mention um, that again mm -hmm. have been excavated in the last sort of 15 years. Um, Kings Hill North, so that's just outside ah, right. yeah. of Direncester. Um, and that site sort of runs from the Neolithic period um, right the way through to Roman. Um, yeah. So we have quite a lot of um, objects to come out of, of Kings Hill North, um, including... Mm -hmm. um, Beaker burials, and the yeah, one that we have yeah. on display in the new galleries is a reconstructed burial of um, a, a female, 
and mm -hmm. uh, she's in the usual position on her side um, in a flex position uh, with a beaker at her, her feet. Um, this is a really unusual burial uh, because it's what's called a, a who's and hide burial. And basically a cow hide was placed. They're incredibly rare. Okay. And oh, goodness, yes. Yeah, and, and so it has the hide of a cow over the top of her does that have another name? Because that was um, that was similar to the uh, the Lechlade um, uh, burial, wasn't it? There was a there was a cowhide burial there. I think there was. There, there yes. are others. There's one in I think yeah. Wharton Business Park, um, okay. and also you get them in Wessex. So that's the other place. Right. Yeah. So it's clearly. I mean, yeah. it indicates a high status female. Um, mm. But she, the others are male, so she is the only example of a female hide and hooves burial. So, okay. right, quite, so, yeah, yeah, def definitely that was. You're absolutely right, Rupert. Uh, the the Letchlade, uh, yeah, the uh, shaman under the cape, yeah. uh, under the skate park, fella. Interesting, <laughs> and and so not not so very far away, in fact, really. No, uh, that's interesting oh, no. in itself. Because yes, the because the, um, the the beaker is pretty much complete, isn't it? In that, uh, uh, I, I mean, I know it's been completely reconstructed, but um, <laughs> but it, it's almost intact, complete, yes. isn't it? Entire, I mean. Yeah, I mean, we we used um, one of the best in the country, a conservator called Lynn Edge. She was absolutely fantastic. I mean. We sent these beakers out to her, and they were in fragments. They were in bags, fragments. Yeah, and wow. She'd done an incredible <laughs> job, incredible. Yeah, and yeah. so we, you know, we, we, we now have quite a number of, of beakers on display. Um, but there was one beaker from Kings Hill North that I just thought was too fragmentary for her to piece back together. Yeah. But she did it. It's incredible. So really, really lovely items. All these unsung heroes behind the scenes, all these uh, incredible craftspeople behind the scenes. Uh, yes. Yeah, making these things possible. That's another aspect, isn't it? When you were um, making all the new displays in the museum, you, you've actually made films with a lot of uh, highly skilled uh, uh, creators, haven't you? Uh, yeah. The, the likes of, um, of, uh, of James uh, Dilley and... Uh, and people, do, yeah. Yeah, tell us a little bit about them because it's yeah, quite a bit and of work you did. Tom, okay. Tom Timbrell, yes. yes. Yeah, we know Tom. <laughs> yes. Um, I know I've li listened to to your shows before and the numbers of people that were mentioned, I thought, oh, we've used them in the galleries. Great. <laughs> 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 <Right. laughs> but they are, they're, they're the leading experts in their field at what they do and we've, we've yeah. managed to use them, but... We've got different interpretive strands going through the galleries, and one of these is technologies and the change. It's an obvious one mm. in prehistory, but the change in technology as you go through the different ages. And so we yeah. begin in the, the, the Paleolithic period, talking about hand axes and flint napping as the very first you know, stone tools. Um, so James Dilley is in a film and, and he, he shows his techniques of making a, a hand axe. And then we go through um, with the introduction of pottery in the Neolithic. And we've got, of course, Graham Taylor, um, who produces a grooved ware pot. Um, and then we've got Neil Burridge, and he does a um, Bronze Age Pulse Dave axe. And then we go through... Uh, to Tom Timbrell, who does a, an Iron Age knife. And then the last video is the um, Ermine Street Guard talking about the Roman cavalry and the arrival of the cavalry. So we've got these films. They're really lovely, actually. Um, uh, but we come to an important point, uh, uh, Amanda, and uh, that um, the uh, Stone Age to Corinium uh, display, whatever we like to call it, it's not just a display of the taxonomy and the chronology. Uh, of prehistory it's also access to examining for people to uh, interpret 
to interrogate, shall I say, the process of archaeology itself. Do you want to say a bit more about that? Yeah. I know it's something quite close to your heart, that. It is close to my heart. And, you know, I was delighted when, <laughs> when you saw images of the galleries and you picked it up. And I was so thrilled because to get that across and you to realise that's the point, I, I, was, I was really, really yeah. pleased. Um, because I think for me, because I've worked in education and, and um, also, you know, in archaeology, um, I sometimes feel that people don't necessarily understand or make the connection between objects they see on display and the whole process that object has been through to get <laughs> to be on display. And the lifetime of an object, I mean, you think some of those objects haven't seen the light today for 25 years, um, but also yeah. <clears throat> to what happened to it prior to it even getting to that stage is quite remarkable. Um, but I think it's really important that you show that that process of actually something is excavated, it's discovered, um, and then it's it's probably in bits when it's discovered, you know, so somebody then has to piece it back together as best they can. Then there are people that might um, do research on an object, so take analysis of an object, um, and that might tell us something else about the object. Um, and, you know, it has to be processed. Once, once it arrives at the museum, it goes through this processing. And, um, and then eventually it will end up on display. But it ends up on display in a way that we choose to display it as well. You know, it's, it's within a, yeah. a, a theme. It's within a story. Um, and it could yes. be part of many stories, but it's in the story that we decide to tell. Yeah. So if you take it out of that context, yeah. for example, then its meaning changes yeah. completely. And getting across that, that, that uh, the archaeology is not necessarily about the objects, it's not about the bling, but it's about the context itself, because without the context you can't tell any story, and that's yeah. eventually what archaeology uh, is all, all about, being able to uh, give yeah. a narrative, give a, a, a story that... Uh, um, you know, yeah. is illuminating and uh, inspiring. Absolutely. That wasn't a question, but no. <laughs> <laughs> one of my one of my famous non questions, Amanda. <laughs> you've you've touched on this a couple of times, but um, but there's a lot more to say about it. Uh, I think one thing that, apart from the fact that the museum is just so spectacular now. Um, and it'll be lovely to be able to show people uh, some of those um, aspects in this. But um, but education as well, mm. and not just education, but the way you've uh, you've you've actually opened it up in a in a, a much more communal way. You know, you've got different aspects of uh, of the local community that can engage with the museum uh, now. But uh, educationally, the amount of children of all ages that um, uh, that you're getting involved, you know. It's uh, we've said this in, in, in other in places that you know that, that there there is nothing more important than inspiring children, and it, it's something that you've you've put a lot of effort into making that happen. So you know, tell us a little bit more about uh, how the uh, the museum actually engages educationally. Um, yeah. So um, in in that development stage of the project. One of the things that you have to do is identify what audiences you're going to work with. So, I mean, as a team, we, we sat down, we did a lot of work into this and, and looked at, well, we know, we know who we reach. We know who our audiences are that already engage with us. Well, who aren't we reaching? You know, who's missing out? Because these are the people that we should try and engage with. Um, and, uh, the prehistory galleries themselves opened up new opportunities. So one of those um, was, of course, that the, the curriculum has changed again, and now prehistory is taught on the school curriculum once it's again. About time too. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so um, that gave us an opportunity to do a whole series of of new workshops based on prehistory because. It's all well and good suddenly changing the curriculum, but actually if schools aren't 
set up to 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 deal with this or the local museum doesn't offer anything mm. then i know a lot of teachers were sort of scratching their heads and saying well what 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 do we what do we do um so that was a fantastic opportunity so we did a lot of work with local schools um and discussing the curriculum and and, and what we could offer um so we have a range of things because we have workshops that can happen here in the museum but we also have loans boxes that go out to schools and they use the artifacts themselves from the loans boxes oh wow um, how exciting yeah yeah which are really popular and especially at the moment because we can't do any workshops sure. in yeah. the museum <laughs> um yeah so so now we're having to develop a whole load of digital content as well so we've got an alternative program for schools whilst we're not doing hands-on delivery um so schools was an important one we also recognize i mean we we are a very well-known family museum um but within that we we didn't feel like we catered for early years particularly um, so mm-hmm. we looked at, at ways of working with with early years. So we worked with a number of groups in Sirencester um, to see the sorts of things that they would be interested in. So we we now have a storytelling program. We have. Can you see on the wall? Yes. Behind me. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a tactile playmat. Oh, yeah. Which is a prehistoric. <laughs> I was just going to say the same. Yeah, what one? <laughs> <laughs> Good grief! <laughs> so the little round houses and stone circles. Yeah, but yeah. This is for under fives to engage oh, with the prehistoric Lord. landscape. We've got a, um, a a reconstructed roundhouse in the galleries, and inside that we've we've put um, like foam log cushions and and different things that really young children can play with and interact they absolutely love it so it's been really successful things like musical instruments things like that brilliant well you can tell that rupert and i have a numerical age and we have an actual age now (laughs) yeah yes yes yeah yeah as has been observed by numbers of people over the years Uh, are you able, uh, you know, with with the strength of this exhibition and the museum and the redevelopment of the museum, do you feel now uh, that your outreach is uh, beyond the own lo- your own the locality, and uh, you can outreach more nationally, perhaps? I hope so, <laughs> because I mean, from the educational point of view, yeah. From the educational point of view, yeah. I do. I mean, we, we, we do cover quite a, a wide area in terms of education. Schools come from all over to, to visit us. Ah, right. yeah. We have yeah, won yeah. awards for our That's education, um, yeah. but and we cover all ages. I mean, I focus there on, on early years, actually, but we cover secondary school, college. We've got we, we, the college down the road, Siren Sister College, used to offer the archaeology A-level until they got rid of it, mm-hmm. um, which is a whole other subject. But um, the the college do offer some heritage courses, so we work closely with them. And, of course, we've got the Royal Agricultural University, which has recently started doing an archaeology degree. Um, oh, really? so, okay. but, but we have other universities visiting as well. So we, we cover the whole, the whole range. It's amazing. It is amazing. Well, conscious of time, Amanda, uh, t- tell us what uh, what's next for you now. What you know, you, you so you you've just recently so you've come to the end of this massive six year uh, project. You've opened the new galleries, which are just breathtaking. Yes. What now? Um, well, first and foremost, I'm having a well earned holiday <laughs> because yeah. I had some really difficult moments where. Everyone went off on on furlough, and I was oh. literally the only person here finishing the project single handedly. Yes. <laughs> so um, I am exhausted, to be honest. But I think after after having a, a break, um, of course, the project's not actually finished because we have the activity plan that runs now for a period of time, where we have to deliver a number yeah. of programs. Um, mm-hmm. So we have to do that. And and as one uh, rather nice funder 
pointed out to me when I sent them the invitation to the launch, they got back to me and said, oh, that's wonderful. That's great. Well, we'll be expecting your final report then. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's what you've been really looking forward to. Yes. So I thought, oh, I don't even get a day. Now I'm going to start report writing to actually now. Yeah. So there's lots of that to do, but I think um, it's a it's a moment for pause, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. To take yeah, a, yeah. a breath, enjoy the new galleries, and really think about what what to do next. Well, what a fantastic uh, achievement! I, for one, am absolutely full of admiration, and uh, uh, absolutely. Yeah. It's it's remarkable mm. what you have achieved. It truly mm. is, and and you, clearly you were the person <laughs> for the job because uh, you know you've just you've driven it so uh, yeah. just with such clarity. Uh, it's honestly, genuinely, yeah, yeah. Uh, we are in awe. Um, it, it it is wonderful, and we very much look forward to being able to come to visit. Yeah. As well, when uh, when everything settles down. If you is there anything that you feel that we've we've missed out in this uh, conversation, which we've enjoyed so much listening to you as well? But is, is there anything you'd like to add uh, before we before we wrap up? Um, well, I I just feel like um, I I haven't expressed enough how um, important some of these objects are, and we really do have spectacular objects on display mm. to see so you know it's it's yeah. really yeah. well worth it excellent well we agree <laughs> well, we shall uh, we shall make sure that we give people all the uh, all the all the links for how they can uh, uh, you know find your uh, your website yeah. online and things like that uh, because uh, yes, for the people who can't come to visit uh, readily, then it would be good for them to see uh, uh, some of the aspects that, that they will yeah. be missing if they don't come to visit. And the, the good thing about not having a launch here in the the museum is that we did the online launch. So if people are interested, then yeah. they can see all the new galleries through that and and learn a bit more about the the story behind yeah. it. Yeah. So do put that link on. We will share yeah. that as yeah. well. Yeah, indeed. Well, it's time to say uh, bye-bye and uh, say how much we've enjoyed the conversation. And uh, thank you so much once again uh, for joining us for this uh, for this chat, uh, Amanda. And uh, I, 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 my guess is that quite a few people listening to this will come away very inspired by not only your example, but, uh, uh, you know, the, the kinds of things that you have achieved and, uh, and showing what's, what's possible. Yes. So um, um, thank you. Honestly, we are, we are so grateful. You know, thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time to talk with us because, uh, you know, as I said, it, it's wonderful what you've achieved there. And, uh, and the more people know about it and come to visit uh, the museum, the better. Oh, thank, so, thank you so uh, yeah, much. Thank you very, very much. Thank you for, for having me on. And I will say just one last thing briefly. During the first lockdown, when I was... Um, off and I had to, to go on furlough and the project had to pause which was really difficult for three months the one thing that kept me going was listening to you guys so thank you very oh, much you are so wow. sweet thank you so much <laughs> that is such a nice thing to say that's true. That's lo- thank you very much <laughs> that's lovely to hear thank you thank you Amanda thank you, thank you. viewers for, for watching uh, we'll see you all very soon indeed take good care bye